Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Latifah Simon. I'm the president of the Akhenati Foundation, a foundation here in Oakland, California, funding the movement to bring about racial justice here in Oakland. I'm also a member of the BART Board of Directors, and I'm so excited, so excited to be moderating today's program. I am honored and pleased um, and just thrilled to be joined today by Philadelphia's District Attorney, Larry Krasner, to discuss his book, For the People, A Story of Justice and Power. Larry has spent, or I should say Larry, D.A. Krasner has spent 30 years of, of his career much of his adult life advocating for top-down reform in the criminal justice system here in the United States. He's run a platform of on reform and of reform deep in systems to reduce incarceration. And through his short but extremely impactful time in office, he's adapted, again, these politics to become real policy. He's attempted to end the age-old system of cash bail payments for low-level offenders. He's pushed to reduce supervision for parolees who are on the right track, and he's worked to seek more lenient sentences for particular crimes that he's felt that folks shouldn't be locked up for. Um, I'm personally a big fan of D.A. Krasner's, as some folks know, not only working at Akhenati, but I too, like Larry, hope that in my life that I could be a part of this larger movement to end the war on drugs and to be a part of a really deeply restorative system. And so reading this book, which we're going to talk about today, For the People, talking with an elected district attorney is a, a treat for me and I hope a treat for the rest of us. Again, in the next about 30, 40 minutes, um, we're going to be asking you all to put some questions in the chat. Um, we're going to have a conversation and we'll use the last 10 minutes or so to be in dialogue with our Commonwealth Club community. So with that, thank you, Larry, for joining us and welcome. Well, thank you. And, you know, all that DA stuff, I don't need that. Please just call me Larry. Well, you know what? My, my grandmother used to say, if you earn it, it's yours. So uh, we'll, we'll go back and forth. It'll be Larry and DA. Just humor me. All right. All right. I'll humor you. So I actually have a number of questions, but in scripting some of the questions after I read your book and I followed, you know, your race and I know you were here in California, both, you know, during your race and after your race, educating folks with other progressive DAs about what this moment is like. So I'm going to talk about that, but I actually have a question that I just thought of on my way over here to my office. Um, I mean, Larry, you, you saw the trial that just ended, right? And I know you watched it closely. Many Americans and actually folks around the world, probably for the first time, saw a prosecutorial team humanize the life of an imperfect man, a Black man, a father, in a way that we, many of us, have not known the, the vocation of the prosecutor's office. I mean, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of questions, and I've seen you on TV in the last couple of weeks about that trial, but when you were running for office... You talked about the prosecutor having the one of the, the highest and most important responsibilities is to protect the people. How does that ethos and what we saw, many of us, a new lens of what prosecutors can do is humanize a victim who looks like the oppressed, right? Talk a little bit about that, your reactions, how that felt, 
So, um, you know, obviously I was very encouraged by the verdict. Uh, It was a matter of concern for a lot of reasons. I spent 30 years as a criminal defense attorney, but also as a civil rights attorney. And my my primary civil rights work was suing police for brutality, for corruption, for framing people. That has been a tough slog for a very long time for lawyers. But let's talk about what really matters. What we saw with Chauvin with George Floyd was nothing new. It's yeah. been go- going on literally for centuries. It was, um, you know, it, it's a, just a video of something that hasn't been videoed all that often. And it's a truly compelling video. How did it feel? I mean, it felt good. It felt like it's overdue. And I do mean overdue a very, very, very long time. What actually struck me as someone who tried a lot of cases for 30 years and was in court almost every day was the remarkable moment of the police commissioner saying that what the defendant, one of his charges, you know, an officer did was unacceptable. It was the um, the other police personnel, the EMT, talking about how terrible what Chauvin did was. That is not familiar. That is unfamiliar. That is unfamiliar turf. And why I think so? why so? Why so, Larry? I'm curious about this. Why so? Why? Because they, because there's a a blue wall. Because they cover for each other. Because they lie for each other. Because frankly. For too long, police uh, people in police culture have had a mentality that is almost criminal in nature. You know, the notion is that it's us against them and that we will protect ourselves by any means it takes, including lying, including fraudulent paperwork, including covering for each other. Uh, You know, the notion is that you never turn on your fellow officer or everyone will turn on you. And sadly, at times it has been true. You know, it's it's a very it's a really bad situation for exactly the people we want to be cops. But I will say this, that um, the police commissioner, I hope I don't butcher his name, but I think it was Arredondo. The the police commissioner, you know, he had an interesting history. He had filed a civil rights lawsuit as a black officer who, who said he was discriminated against. He had done the thing that many officers don't want to do, which is work in internal affairs, the unit that is supposed to be holding police accountable, but too often has become kind of a disciplinary arm of the police union that selectively holds people accountable and holds other people in no way accountable if they if they're close to the union. So he had an interesting history. It was pretty clear that he had the capacity to feel these things and do these things. Um, and I have to say, I don't know him well, but the little bit I saw, his willingness to take the stand in that national right. moment, I think that was encouraging. I think it also is, is a challenge to police commissioners all over the country, police chiefs all over the country. There's a new standard. There is a new standard, yeah. And it's been set, frankly, you know, not just in the wake of the last few years or the last uh, 30 years. I mean, this this standard of, of folks wanting to move into positions of power to shift the dynamic of who's making decisions. So I actually want, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift up these questions a little bit. I'm going to ask the questions that I, I'm really curious about. Um, when you, In the book, you actually talk about, and I think for the people is is it's memoir, it's part policy. It feels um, like a textbook in some ways because there, there is, is there, there's a trajectory um, of, of the nation shifting. But, you know, you're a prosecutor. You were a defense attorney for over a generation, and you would have made a hell of an elected public defender somewhere. And I think you're a hell of a DA. Why? Talk about the, the, the space in the book in the first few chapters. You know, there, there is this story. One, why did you write the book, and why would someone who 
deeply understands the flaws of the criminal justice system and the adversarial nature of the public defender or the, or the defense attorney and the DA run for an office that is held by folks who don't necessarily have your politics. Talk about both, the book and why you ran. Well, um, wonderful big question. So I ran, you know, (laughs) I ran because, uh, those people shouldn't have the power, you know, government should not work against us. We ought to be able to go into government and take it back and make it work for us. And I was disgusted after 30 years of watching terrible policies that just made everything worse. That was part of it. Some of it was just personal. You know, I had, I was 56 years of age. I'd gotten a lot of justice for individuals in particular cases, but the entire time the system was, was getting worse. And frankly, you know, I used to analogize it to watching a slow motion car crash. Yes. I saved a few people. I pulled them out of a situation where they would have been wrongfully convicted, but I turned around and more and more people were incarcerated every day. So that is really why I ran because to some extent I look back on my uh, career what did I do? You know, what did I accomplish with all of that effort? That was part of it. But when I ran, and the book actually covers the 98 days of the campaign before yeah. we won. When That's I ran, chapter one. Yeah. yeah, it was one of my favorite. One of the, it's good literature, folks. So yeah, I liked it a lot. Well, that's the nicest thing I've heard in a long time. So thank you for that. But when I, you know, when I ran, what was rolling around in my head the whole time, and what the stories I was telling on the campaign trail were things that came from from really being a relatively naive person who got into the system, believing it wasn't so bad. And then I saw how absolutely awful it was in so many different ways and how much change was needed. So I was telling those stories on the trail. I was getting stories back from people I met with on the trail. I was learning things the whole time. And somewhere in this process, it occurred to me that there needs to be a conversation with people who don't know the system, that yeah. all, all real change is at the level of culture, you know, and change, change in movements are something I've, studied for reasons we could talk about but the bottom line is it's all at the level of culture and people don't learn by being told rules they learn by being told stories uh and wrapping their minds around it and, yeah. and I, I decided if i was going to write anything it was going to be a conversation with really smart high school kids and college kids and maybe some young law students and people who aren't in the system people yeah. who are retired you know i want to i want i just wanted to have that conversation some of the hardest moments, I'm sure, as now the elected DA, are, are trying to figure out, you know, you talk about it in the prosecutor in integrity chapter, well, it's throughout the book, but you talk about this, this, this huge role, that these people who take this oath, who stand up every day in front of the court, announce their name, and then say, for the people, they take this oath to protect victims and survivors. You argue in the book that the folks on the other side of the table and the defense side are also oftentimes victims and survivors. Can you talk about this in the, in the first, I guess it's almost been two years, right? Maybe longer, I, but since you've been elected, you're seeing not just the cases that you would take as a private attorney, but every case that comes in from last night's arrest. And you see and you read the stories of real folks who have been harmed by other folks. And you also have this mantle to change a system that you did not create. I want you, because this is not happening in terms of our conversations around the job of the progressive prosecutor, how do you how do you help us understand how you put victims first? And what is putting victims first? What are, what are they deserving of? And while doing that, how do you systemically change a system? Wow, what a wonderful I know, question. I so, know. 
I mean, sure. that's the question. That is it. But I mean, I have other questions, Larry, but you know, as somebody who myself years and years ago was victimized brutally um, and working with the district attorney and knowing that there weren't many options for the person who hurt me, but the option that we're all trying to abolish, right? Um, this is the this is the work. And I think outside of just, because your book, you talk about these false choices, right? I, I think it's a conversation and none of us have the answer, but I want to be in discussion with you about this. Sure. So, uh, you know, I view the role of a prosecutor as being in the oath and the oath is that you're supposed to seek justice and it does not, it says you are there for the people. It does not say that you are there for the single individual most harmed is that you are there for the people, all the people in that jurisdiction. So that does mean everybody in the courtroom, including being fair to the defendant, including being fair to the, to the victim, survivors, witnesses, everyone in that process, people on the jury, you have to do that. But it also is that much, much larger group of people who are not even in the courtroom, who've never heard of this case, um, because the decisions that are made in that courtroom are so expensive and can be so damning to the futures of people who are outside of that courtroom who need things. They need things like really great public schools and they need different forms of treatment. They need economic development. They need economic opportunity. They need all these things. And for way too long, what has happened is prosecutors have focused almost exclusively on the one they perceived as the victim and on politics and on their self-advancement. There's a much broader view that is necessary here if we're going to get it right. Uh, if you actually look at the cost of putting a person in a jail cell for a year, a light number is 50 grand. That's a light number. We're not talking so, about prison. You're talking about county jail. And, and some people don't know the difference. We're immersed in this work every day. What's the difference? County jail versus prison. Uh, you know, I, I would say the short version is county jail usually is where you are while you're awaiting trial or you're serving a, a short sentence, probably for a misdemeanor. And prison is where you go to do hard time. And it is usually where you've gone after you have been convicted and sentenced of a crime. You may also be back, back there on a, on a state parole violation, something like that. But, you know, we have to we do have to keep our focus on the people who are in the room. But we also got to remember that little girl who's not in the room, who is uh, who is, you know, in a classroom. They are part of this. That's so. right. That what's what surprised you the most about now being inside the belly of the beast? I'm just sure there's a number of things, but like top two that you you know we would talk about at brunch. Like what what would be the thing that you would say? Holy moly! I had no idea. Um, well, I did. Have, I did have an idea. I just didn't know how bad it was. I mean, actually, what I found inside the office was worse than even I thought after 30 years of, of having had cases primarily with that office. Um, you know, I found a culture that was worse than I thought. I found practices by reading some old emails that were worse than I thought. You know, things like, well, we know that these are dirty cops, and we know that technically speaking, we got to turn over the information about them. So let's do this. Let's try to get everybody to plead guilty on these cases before we have to turn over the information. Oops. Actually, you had to turn over the information in the beginning, you skunks. But these were the emails that would go back and forth between these people, this very yeah. calcula calculated approach to extracting convictions from people when the case had no integrity whatsoever, things like that. The deliberate hiding of bad information about, about witnesses or police officers, you know, using over and over the same informant who somehow magically got multiple jailhouse confessions and then not telling any of the defense attorneys in those cases, we just used them last week over here. 
or he always works with the same prosecutor over there. He just magically gets confessions. He's like a vending machine, right? Mm-hmm. It, I mean, in that sense, it was worse. But there, it then got to be a little bit like The Wire. You know, then you start to look at, well, what is the media doing? My dad was a writer. He was an author. I always had, you know, high reverence for journalists. Uh, well, let me just say, I don't quite feel the same way anymore because what I found that was the media in many ways, not everyone, but many of them were just one more institution living a particular narrative. And that narrative is, you know, what bleeds leads. Uh, let's sell papers through fear. Let's talk about the bad stuff and never talk about the real policies and the data and the trends and what matters. You know, in other words, I came to see to what extent they were responsible for the fact that 65 percent of our population has believed crime was going up for 30 Mm -hmm. years when when crime was going down. You know, they they didn't make that up themselves. It was a cooked up entertainment, but it was also a cooked up kind of journalism. And I found the same sorts of flaws in politics. And I I found the same sorts of flaws in different institutions that were more about patronage and power than they were, uh, for example, about appropriate supervision on probation and parole, or actually getting things done to make people safe. So, um, you know, in one sense, it's pretty dark vision. But in another sense, what I found was that by not letting the wrong people have these jobs, you really can slam on the brakes in a way that they slammed on the gas. And and so that's why, you know, in a little over three years, we have actually cut in half the number of wow. future, future years of incarceration that our Philly courts are generating. And that's before the pandemic. Uh, we've cut by two thirds the number of future years of supervision on probation and parole that the courts are generating. And we've reduced the juvenile snake pit placements we used to have by 80 percent in less than three years. Um, I, I, wish I, I wish I could ask you to define snake pit placement too. I mean, like there's so, there's so much depth. If you actually read the book, you'll see, I spent all morning kind of circling things that I thought I've never heard of this term. What is that? And talk about how, how I have two more questions before questions for the audience, but define snake pit. Well, I mean, to me, snake pit is a phrase that was used a lot in, in the days of, of mental health reform. And it, it refers to, uh, you know, a, a placement where, where no one would ever want to be, nor should they. It is dangerous. It is fearful. It, it, it is damaging. And so many of our juvenile facilities in Pennsylvania were not only costing more than $200,000 per year per student to house them and supposedly educate them, but there was actually all kinds of abuse happening in those locations. The education turned out to be dismal. Uh, you know, kids came out of these places and went right back and committed another crime. And their, yeah. their, their separation from family and community ended up being much more damaging than anybody perceived, right? So in the last few years in Pennsylvania, there's been, there have been quite a few scandals around these, what I refer to as snake pit placements. Yeah. And so a number of them have closed and, and we have followed the national trend of trying to get kids closer to home when they need to be placed at all. I mean, to have a DA talking about what we as parents know, what would we want for our children if they made a mistake? Um, it is, it's just revolutionary. Here in Alameda County, there are community organizations begging our local DA to think about prosecuting children differently. They're working to get rid of unnecessary institutions. And while juvenile justice reform, you know, we've won so many battles in every state, in the United States, we still put children in cages. You know, I, I want to ask you my last question to you. Second to last question is about your wife, um, mm-hmm. who um, I, I just 
love how she's inspired your career and uh, keeps you on your toes. Um, but in your book, I, I, you can't help when you're talking about a district attorney. And I was able to work with our now vice president, Kamala Harris, for five years and helped her, um, you know, in her quest to try to shift what what not only the perception, but what the doing is of, of district attorneys to get real justice. I knew that there was a dichotomy, a, a difficult dichotomy with the progressive thinking student of history, prosecutor, and police officers, and of course, police unions. You know, in your book, uh, you express this, 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 this oftentimes what can be a conflict, but also, you know, the, the relationship that you're trying to build with, with police officers asking you, do you have our back? And you saying the same thing. Do you have our backs? Meaning the, 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 the constitution of the state of Philadelphia um, or Pennsylvania. I want to talk about that. This, this idea of how, how you're looking at this work as expanding uh, the promise of democracy with other actors in criminal justice. So yeah, your relationship with, with police leadership. Latifa, when you talk about people who are begging their prosecutor to reform, Juvenile justice, stop begging, you know, start winning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The people you're talking to don't think right. They need to get out of your way and let you, if not you, then someone you know and you trust, take that spot. You know, 10% of the United States right now has elected a progressive prosecutor, and they have reelected them over and over and over. And I say that to you as someone who's three weeks away from my own uh, reelection, we hope. Uh, you know, it, we, we can't let Bill Barr have that seat. You're never going to talk that man into anything sensible at all. Never. And this is, this, this is sort of the problem that, that, you know, prosecution has become so identified with being a terrible person that people don't want to become a prosecutor. Yes, you do. Because your decision not to try to be that allows Bill Barr to have that spot. We really do have to go inside and, and take these positions over. And um, yeah, you're going to have to do some uncomfortable things. Yeah. But but wouldn't you, wouldn't you, and I say this to all those activists and advocates out there, wouldn't you rather be presenting your argument to yourself? Wouldn't <laughs> you rather be asking someone who thinks like you and knows history like you for the things that you want instead of saying, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't. Well, you've already made a choice. If your bottom line is I can't have the power that I want to move things, it ain't going to move. It just isn't. Calvary is coming, basically, right? It's us. I mean, I, I'm sure you can tell, too, and folks like Stephanie Morales and Kim and Chesa, the internship applications for summer for all you all are probably through the roof. My daughter is a 1L and at, at Howard, and she's telling me that, like, how many of her peers who would have probably tried to interview to be public defenders are wanting to work with uh, folks who are on the other side of the table. And I think that that, sh that shift is ex extremely exciting. Let's talk about, let's talk about your better half. Yes. You talk about her in the book. And I I'm just curious what, you know, being the DA of a city that is, is consistently in, in transition, um, doing national work, being a national spokesman, right now a published author. Um, yeah, talk, talk about how Lisa inspires you. Hmm. Another big topic. I know. I mean, we need so, a week so, the whole day. So, <laughs> so almost. So, um, you know, Lisa and I went to law school in the Bay Area together. That's where we met. And um, 
she, I mean, she just did civil rights her whole life. That was it. She was, she was in the Peace Corps. She was a civil rights attorney doing employment. <clears throat> she ran for judge. And, and part of the book talks about that. It talks about what it was like to be an insurgent candidate going against the seemingly unbeatable machine. She fought them twice, but she was so damn, so damn good at it the first time that they pretty much put up the white flag the second time and decided to support her because she was going to embarrass them by winning. Uh, you know, it was, it was an eye-opening experience for us because I always figured that I was an outsider, that politics was impenetrable, that even though she was amazing, we just couldn't crack this code. And she really did crack the code of how you get into politics. One, as a judge, she was a judge for 19 years, retired recently to become a professional mediator which is in essence a in essence a private judge while she is simultaneously coming up with wild and fascinating uh new efforts to do things like address the uh tremendous problem we have with with heroin addiction in in philadelphia things like that and she got some good stories i'll tell you that i mean just her stories from the peace corps are kind of amazing in many ways her being in the peace corps she was in thailand for two years in the uh in the early 80s taught you everything you need to know about politics because uh, running around a, a big city's ward system like Philadelphia, not too different than trying to go from uh, unwelcoming place to unwelcoming place in a different culture to bring them things they hadn't heard before, like you should eat differently, right? But it was those, those experiences of, that she had of being that outsider uh, that made her such a dangerous candidate. You know, she was also a military brat. And what that, of course, means is new school every year or every two years. And once again, you're an outsider plopped into new classrooms where you have to make your way and you have to survive. Well, I mean, in many ways, she prepared her whole life to be a candidate, never thinking she would want it, want it. Mm -hmm. But but she was that she was that good at it. And it really illustrated for me that we got the wrong people doing politics. Like, you know, teenagers coming up, looking in the mirror who are whistling hail to the chief are not the ones you want running for office. The ones you want running for office don't think they want it. They don't think they can do it. They're that's um, the story comes out so loud and clear one about the shared moral the bridge that you have together and to have a house of warriors and, and, and folks who don't sleep for, you know, the, the joy of, of the, well, the, the joy of the work, but also, you know, what I, what I was really inspired by is this idea that, and this is going to sound a little bit mushy there. So we see each other. I want to talk about it more, this idea that we can find partnership in this world where we share deep values, both in, in family and in work and dreams and politics. And that, that work isn't easy, but to, to, to share, to share all of those things, um, you live love in public. And I, I just appreciate so much that you talk about that love in the book, because we, we, as people who are doing the work, um, we oftentimes don't bring our full self and why I ask that question, our full selves are who we, how we show up at work. It's how we show up in the streets. And in this moment, we absolutely need people who we know, know how to love real people and who see people. So for real last question, and I have three questions that we'll do in like 10 minutes from the, from the audience. What do you want folks to read when they, how do you want the, their lens to read when you read this book? I know, that's kind of a weird thing to ask, but you're putting a lot out there from your yeah. campaign announcement, right, to this trajectory, some history, lots of dates. Um, it's a great read, but what do you want people to take away from it? What do you want them to be thinking of while they're reading it? Well, I, I think there's a few things. 
I think I want uh, for a lot of them. I think it's a call to arms. It's called it's a call to action, uh, and it is saying something quite simple, which is yes, you actually can do this. People, the the main power that our mainstream political parties have is they convinced you you can't, and once you realize that you absolutely can, the potential to change things becomes almost unlimited. You know, I know that sounds like a bunch of aspirational nonsense, but let me ask you something. How is it that in, in only a decade, 10% of the United States elected progressive prosecutors? Right. And the answer, of course, is it's nothing exceptional about us. Right. It is that the grassroots, the people want this. They wanted it for a long time. And once you realize the institutions can be cracked, that the outsiders can go in and they can take back government, make it work for them, then then do it. You know, that's part of it. So I hope it will inspire people to run or to, or to get their friends to run, to support those campaigns, to realize that they can change prosecutors' offices, but they can also change mayors so that they hold police accountable. You know, they can also change mayors so that they will negotiate those police unions instead of just giving them everything they want so they can elevate the profession instead of dragging it down. So, you know, that's part of it. Part of it is just um, the stories themselves have value. You know, we talk about Derek Chauvin. We talk about George Floyd. That is a lens of the most dramatic, horrifying thing. But it's also worth talking about women who catch their cop husbands cheating and then end up in a pair of handcuffs being dragged into a police station because that cheating cop husband wants leverage for child custody proceedings and to get the house and to lower alimony. You know, there, there is in the same, a lot of times we talk about homicides, but we don't talk about misdemeanors. Well, the truth is most people's lives are more affected by misdemeanors than homicides. And the truth is that this vacuum of accountability that can really only be explained through stories for things that seem minor is exactly why. Derek Chauvin finally did what he did. The fact that he could do smaller things and get away with them for year after year after year. is And so I think that those stories can provide a level of, I hope they're entertaining, but certainly I, th- I think they can provide a level of understanding to people to people who um, who are not necessarily in the game. They're not necessarily in there, but they want to know about it. Yeah, so many, so many folks um, have a, a privilege of never having to touch this system, right? And... So many folks have the privilege, unless they're selected for a jury, never have to go downtown, right, to be in the courts or to come up to your office or to go visit your victim advocates. Um, and, and in many ways, we know that those are the folks who we want to read these stories to humanize um, the folks have folks the folks who other folks have forgotten about. Um, I'm so thankful for you and your work. I'm so thankful. Um, it's hard. There's nothing in your book that talks about how um, this work is joyful. This is, this is you're in the paint. So I have three questions, Dee, that I want to give you um, from the audience. And the first one is uh, about citizen oversight commissions. Do they work? What's been your experience? Um, how do you keep them honest? Is that is, is there enough is there enough teeth in these oversight boards? Clearly, your job as a DA is to prosecute bad people who do bad things, or I should shift that dichotomy, who cross social contracts. Um, but you also, in some cities and counties, and you have these oversight boards. Talk about the utility and what you would maybe hope for for Philly or other cities who are using citizen oversight. So, uh, you know, I think they're very well-intended efforts, and often they have no teeth. 
So the reality is that they draw in some um, people who really want change and who give a lot of time and effort to it, but they don't bring that much change. As long as you leave Bill Barr sitting in the prosecutor's seat, then what you're doing is you got a pocket knife and he's got a tank. And um, I mean, sure, it's nice to have a pocket knife if you don't have the tank, but why don't you get the tank too? You know, I think you understand what a DA can do. You know, a DA can charge a police officer on duty with murder. And my office has actually charged two of them with murder, something that wasn't done in Philadelphia for more than 20 years. And last time it was done, it was thrown out immediately. Our two cases are going to trial. We may win, we may lose. But, you know, when Marilyn Mosby stepped up and she tried to do something about Freddie Gray, they meant something, right? So I think that they're a good idea. They need to have more teeth, a lot more teeth, but do not kid yourself. If you really want to bring serious change, then you're going to have to have prosecutors who are willing to charge police officers with crimes when they commit crimes. I mean, Larry, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. I, when I think about your election, by the way, good luck. Um, Thank you. For a number of reasons, you promoted a lot of you know, junior lawyers of color, and I you know, know a couple of, of them, and um, it's, it's a place where folks want to be, um, and, they, and they believe deeply that the system can one day work for, for all of our folks. Um, so you definitely are walking the talk. And then that, what do you see as, this is another question from the audience, the future of the progressive prosecutor movement? Because this, this audience member says that it seems like all over the country, the media is fixated on the idea that crime is rampant in cities like Philadelphia and San Francisco who have elected progressive prosecutors. Do you think it's, a discredit to the overall movement, and will it have impact, a negative impact to sort of sway or push back this prosecutor movement that's been pretty successful in terms of electing progressive prosecutors? So let me just say, you know, I really view this as a grassroots movement for criminal justice reform. One of its manifestations is going to be the election of progressive prosecutors, but but they're they're going to get to some other players soon enough. They're going to get to judges. They're going to get to uh, mayors and how they deal with police departments and so on. The, we are in a moment when here are the facts. The facts are crimes actually down all over the country. Violent crime is actually down all over the country during this pandemic. But there's a terrible spike in gun homicides and shootings. Yep. Uh, and it has become, as you might imagine. Why is, why, why is that? You know, I spent a lot of time working with young people in my earlier days. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's many um, there's hypotheticals about why you talk to cops, they say one thing, DAs, they say another, but it is true. Our people in our communities that we love, they're, they're, they're fighting, they're fighting institutionalized racism. They're, they're fighting hunger and joblessness. They're fighting bad cops. They're, you know, fighting bad electeds. And now they're burying in Oakland, you know, we have, we're close to 50 murders. Whereas last year there were about 17 at this time. Mm-hmm. It's in Philly too. It's Boston, it's Detroit. Um, and that is what leads, right? That is what's leading. And right. instead of we have this criminal, and it's real stuff. It's real pain. So I don't want to diverge from this question, but you mentioned it. Why? What's happening now? Why so many? Why so many kids dying? Two things. The 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 main thing that is happening is that there is has been a social fabric of prevention for young people, and the pandemic completely eliminated it. And you all know this from your own lives. I'm 60 years old. I have never seen a world where there were no organized sports 
in school or out of school. This is young people killing young people. That's what's going on. I've never seen a world where there were no organized sports in or out of school. I've never seen a world where high school classrooms were closed, summer camps closed, swimming pools closed, recreation centers closed, job programs closed, normal places where young people go closed. You know, I've never seen a world where all the houses of worship were closed and, and they were broadcasting rather yeah. than having people in. Um, all kind of, After school programming closed. You know, we already had a terrible situation because we weren't investing enough in those things, but we didn't understand how incredibly important it was until it went away everywhere. Last year in the United States, there were more homicides than any year in U.S. history nationally. And that means in the cornfields, we had an 18% increase in homicides, which is astronomical, and the average increase in the 34 larger cities was 40 percent. But if you if you try to look at that and say, aha, let's see if it's the Republicans, let's see if it's the Democrats, it isn't. If you look at it and, and you say, oh, let's see if it's the progressive prosecutors or the traditional ones, it isn't. There is no thread there. This has actually been studied by John Pfaff at uh, Fordham, and I think he's already published this in the New Republic, but there's absolutely no correlation between those things. The clear correlation is that the elimination of this prevention has had a devastating effect. Now, simultaneously, and this is a smaller issue, we have shut down normal functioning of the criminal justice system in unprecedented ways. In Philly, the courts have been 90% closed for a solid year, and I've been a lawyer for 33 We've never had more than five snow days. Uh, you know, what does it mean? Well, it means that probation and parole in Philly, they have not seen a probationer or a parolee in their office or in their home for a solid year. The only reporting is by phone. All the supportive programming to deal with addiction, to deal with anger yeah. management, all of that disappeared. There's no drug testing. So you're not even aware if something's going on in that regard. And, uh, you know, if you take it even further, you find that policing is not happening the same way. In Philly, you know, ordinarily, it, only two out of 10 shootings got solved, which is another terrible tragedy that very heavily affects poor people and black and brown yeah. people. Yeah. But it has fallen to about one out of 10 during certain times in the pandemic in certain neighborhoods. So you, the big picture, without question, is prevention. And the big lesson, without question, is that we should be investing more heavily than ever. Not merely restore these things that went away, but we should understand now how important they were and put real money into them. In addition to other things like Cure Violence, uh, you know, other community-based organizations that are absolutely worth the investment and the investment for years and years and years, because that's how you bring down crime and you also bring down prison populations and jail populations at the same time. But we simultaneously, there was this complete disruption of our, our criminal justice system that did not help. You know, I appreciate, I know I kind of went right in the middle of the, of the question, the larger question about the prosecutor movement, but in your answer, you know, you elevate um, the layer upon layer upon layer of, of wicked problems that we hold pre-COVID and in this very moment and as we move forward. And you're absolutely right, and it's throughout your book, talking about the hubris, essentially, that we have to step forward and be the people who are going to shift and change and call out and tell story about what's happening. Our story, our narratives, um, and, and not what's being created to examine the very, very tricky things that we all know are systemic. Again, racism and poverty and lack of education. One last question. One last question. And it's been almost four years. What are you the most proud of? And you talk about some of these, not wins necessarily, but things, things that, that keep you moving in, in your book. 
what, what are some of the things that you're most proud of and what you've been able to accomplish with your team and community organizers and organizations and folks who keep you honest? What are those things? Give me a couple. Well, I think probably the biggest thing is that the conversation has changed. We have, you know, this movement has gone, thanks to all kinds of people who got there before me, but this movement has gone from being ignored to being laughed at to being fought against. And the fight has now gotten severe. I mean, the amount of money that's being shipped into this city to try to to beat back this movement, knock me out like they tried to do to Kim Fox in Chicago two years ago and to George uh, Gascon in L.A. when he took over last year is just enormous. Um, But in that process, the conversation has changed. You know, some of these things were being said before George Floyd, after George Floyd, the voice is even louder. There are more voices. And I think that that's very important. Now when uh, a bunch of crazy conservative right-wing people run against me, they're pretending they're reformers. They're at least lying to say they're reformers. Why? Because they know what I know, which is that's what the people want. People are quite clear about what they want. The institutions just have not caught up. And I think that that is one of the great things about the National Movement for Criminal Justice Reform is it has changed the conversation. Uh, We see it in film. We see it in books written by much better writers than me. We see it in our politics. We see it in our elections. I mean, the truth is right now, if... If you were to take the Democratic Party's win record, Republican Party's win record, and the win record for real progressive candidates for DA, the most effective political party in the United States is real progressive candidates for district attorney because they're winning about, right now, about 75% of their races across the country. No party can say that. It's That, to me, is very, very important. And I, I think the more that this conversation goes on with people who are not necessarily immediately in the system, the more they come to understand that it's breaking all of us. Well, you know, as we close, I think why it's really important for folks to pick up your book. I've ordered one for my my baby girl, my 24-year-old. What else is coming home this summer to work as a public defender uh, intern in Contra Costa, knowing that there are folks like you who are trying to articulate how you break open a system that's still, still in this country, spends $70,000 a year on putting kids in cages for stealing cell phones, maybe not in your city, but many cities around the country, or still has folks in prison on 20 and 30 year sentence, paying over $150,000 for their incarceration when they're incarcerated for marijuana. We are still doing these things. Nowhere in your book does it say that you want cities played with crime, In fact, you're saying the opposite. You know, through a movement of reexamining a broken system, we can find justice for everyone. So, Larry, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the book. I want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for the fight in your election. I want to thank you for listening to community organizers and mothers and being accountable to real people in real community. For the people is an amazing story, an ongoing story. I know your story is not done yet. A story of justice and power. Thank you for joining us today. And we also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. And, you know, we didn't get to ask all and answer all the questions, but Larry's pretty good on Twitter. And he's also, you know, he's, I see you on those socials. But if you'd like to watch more programs like this or to support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual program programming completely accessible to folks, please visit commonwealthclub.org. That's commonwealthclub.org. Dot org slash online. I'm Latifah Simon, the Akhenati Foundation. 
Thank you so much for attending and have a self-safe and healthy day. And Larry, thanks again. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.